Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Time is a tricky thing. So many of us crave it. Time to relax, to exercise, to catch up with friends, to simply do nothing. But it's often hard to obtain. It becomes something that we have to manage. But exactly how to do that is rarely clear. Time has been a central theme throughout our miniseries on work, though often not explicitly. James Sussman talked about the ideas of abundance, and that reflects easily on time. Marilyn Waring about society's ignorance of all but a few specific types of work. Guy Standing about the value of the commons. Today, we want to look the clock directly in its face, to think about what we want from our time, what time means for how we work, and to rethink how we use it to make sure it doesn't slip away. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. My name's Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And I'm in the studio today with Sharon Bessel. Sharon, how are you? Hi, Anna Greta. It's great to be here with you. For those who don't know me, I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. And this is such a great topic for us to be talking about time and work impact on all our lives under Greta. Absolutely. I think we're all particularly cognizant of it as we're in lockdown here in Canberra uh, with the coronavirus pandemic. Now, Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy, and the Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. There's a great range of uh, degree programs and short courses that are available at Crawford, and you can check that out on the website, crawford.anu.edu.au. study Now, Sharon, today is the last of our mini-series on work, and it's been, I think, a fabulous experience so far, speaking with great thought leaders on work, on its history, and on uh, the role that it plays in our society, the benefits we get from work, and some of the harms that are done through the societal structures of work. What have been your thoughts on the series so far? Uh, Anna Greta, we talked about this series for a very long time, and so I was so excited about it, and it hasn't disappointed. And one of the things that I've loved about this series is not just hearing from this amazing range of thinkers, but also some of the comments that our listeners have made about the way in which these conversations have helped them to either think differently or reflect really deeply on their own work and the way we do things and the way we might want to change that. Um, Mm. I think so many of us feel quite overwhelmed by the pressures and the stresses and the time burdens of work. And we also recognise that there are many things that we do that aren't counted as work that really are. And so I think these conversations have just been illuminating is is the, the word I'd use. Absolutely. It's a look, it's a key moment in our in our human civilization to really consider the role that work plays in our society. And I found myself thinking about it differently from the conversations we've had so far. Today's episode is the last episode, and today we get an opportunity to reflect on the conversations that we've had so far. And we'd like to introduce this idea of time uh, into the conversation. So Sharon, who have we got to join us today for today's conversation? 
We have two fabulous guests today, Anna Greta. I think they're they're two of my personal favourites. Um, not that, that that I have favourites amongst our guests, but these two are really very special. We do have we have a very long list of favourites, Sharon. I think <laughs> we we really do, and it grows all the time. Uh, we have with us today uh, Professor Lyndall Strasdens. Lyndall is professor here at the Australian University at the Research School of Population Health. Lyndall is a world leader in the field of work, family and well-being. She has done an enormous amount of research and deep thinking on issues around time, time pressures and the health challenges that come out of some of those time pressures and also the challenges for families who are trying to combine work and caring. She's done a lot of work on the gendered nature of care and she has led uh, some of the theoretical thinking as well as the empirical evidence around these issues. She sees or she argues that we need to view time as a resource and to think quite differently about it. So I think this will be an excellent conversation with Lyndall. Wow, it's great to have them with us today. Our second guest is John Falzon. I think John is very well known to regular listeners of the pod. He is a sociologist. He's also a poet and a social justice advocate. He's a senior fellow in inequality and social justice at Per Capita and was previously the national CEO of St. Vincent de Paul. And John is one of those people that always makes me think just a little differently after talking to him. Lindu, welcome. Uh, it's great to be here, Sharon, and um, hi to everybody. And John, welcome to you. Great to have you back. Lovely to be here, Sharon. Thank you. So we have very much been looking forward to this conversation and reflecting on some of the conversations that we've had about work over the past few weeks, but also really looking forward to how we can do things differently. And Lindell, I wanted to start with you. One of the ways in which time and work come together to create inequality is around gender and the gendered nature of work. So UN Women has said that on average, women do three times more unpaid care than men do globally, and no single country has achieved a gender equal division of labour particularly around unpaid work. Lindell, you wrote a fantastic piece recently that touches on this issue and I think builds on work that you've done over such a long time. And it was called Why Men Need to Work Like Women. And I think that's such a great title, but it also raises so many issues. I just wanted to read a little bit of it for our listeners and then ask you to talk us through the thinking. So you wrote, for too long, we've been thinking about gender equality in the workplace as women catching up with men, women smashing through glass ceilings to achieve high-powered parity. But this fundamentally misses the point. What's really needed is a reimagining of equality to help men spend more time fulfilling their roles as fathers, as carers, partners, and active community members. In other words, men must do more to work like a woman. And I love this because it picks up on some of those issues that I think we missed in second wave feminism and thinking about equality primarily in terms of workplace engagement. But Lyndall, can you talk us through your thinking behind that article and why we need to think so differently. Right. Thank you, Sharon. Well, um, yeah, um, please stop me because I could go for a long time on this. So <laughs> let, let me. Uh, so let me just start with the fact that we have had this imagining of work and gender equality as women being able able to work like a man and being able to get the same rewards and work in the same ways as men. And if only we could recognise women as similarly capable and remove the barriers to their capability, they would achieve this great standard. And that whole imagining of work has misunderstood entirely how work has evolved and what it rests upon and what else people need to do in their lives. And that is part of the whole, if you like, invisibilising of the non-work world that has been a huge part of how we've evolved in terms of our labour market. So let, let me sort of um, come back to how that paradox expresses itself right now. Right now, we have gender equality policies in the workplace. And those gender equality policies 
embed this complete confusion around women and men and work. They say, we want women to be on parity with men. We don't want women to be only earning 80 cents um, for every dollar a man earns. That's not fair. So we need to remove barriers to let them do that. But then we've got a problem because women also have care. So I know what we'll do is we'll give them leave and we'll help them work part-time. So immediately that paradox tells you that there is never going to be parity. There's a two-tiered system built into our gender equality (laughs) uh, policies because they have fundamentally misunderstood that there is a world of uh, unpaid work and work and those two are connected and someone has to do all of them. If we go back to the harvester decision, the harvester decision was based in Australia on this concept that there needed to be a minimum wage to support a man to earn enough money to support a wife and four children. And that was that has been the foundation of the Australian industrial relations system. It's imagined work as exactly that, a man in the labour market freed up to work by a wife who's outside of the labour market freeing his time to, to and, um, by looking after all the rest. And so that meant that we had about one-fifth of women only in the labour market just after World War II. The labour market was almost you know, predominantly men. That whole system was based on an assumption that the people who are working are men and their time is freed by, by women. But right now we have almost uh, forty, almost half of our labour market is women, 47%. But we have not changed that way of thinking about work. We have imagined that work is a place where your time is free to do what you're required to do on the job. We have not. We have continued to understand work as something as if someone else is still doing all the care work, and it's an impossible situation if there isn't. So we have never reimagined work to being as 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 an enterprise, as an activity that allows men and women equally into it. It's always been an either-or. If one person works, someone has to care. And that creates a binary between work and non-work and it creates a kind of fault line for inequality because who gets to work and who gets paid and who gets the rewards and who gets the status obviously embeds and reflects power. So that difficulty of understanding that we have to rethink work if we want to have a labour market of 47%, nearly 50% women, has not anywhere yet appeared. We've simply thought, let's get women to catch up. And really what that means is women just do a whole lot more. And my work has been showing that when you do a whole lot more, you suffer. You suffer in your health. So we've been asking women to do more to be equal and suffer to do so. It is not equality by any standard. So the work we've been producing over the last decade has been showing that when women seek to work like a man, they will compromise their health. That is the choice they have at the moment in the system of work because we have not fundamentally reimagined work. And if men try and work more like a woman, and there are a lot of men who do want to do this, actually, uh, more than half of Australian fathers are saying they miss out on things with a time with their family that they really um, wish they didn't because of their work. If they seek to increase their care work, then they fall behind in the labour market and they start, we start to see the same health impacts, the same trade-off between success, gender equality and health running like a, a, a line right through the labour market. And that line at the moment is sifting women down into short-hour jobs, low-paid jobs, low-status jobs, or asking them to, to choose the binary, having children or being carers or having a family and working or not. So the, the, this concept I've been calling has been the, the hourglass ceiling really trying to signal that we need to understand that gender equality is also about the dismissal of women as, as, as people of equal value and it's also about a simple, very practical problem, 24 hours. That's all everyone has. There is no, there is no change. You can't, um, you can't expand that. You can't save it. You can't bank and borrow it. You've got 24 hours every day and that limit creates a rigidity to time that we have not realised. We've seen it as an infinite resource simply because we've allowed women to be that infinite resource. 
Lyndall, that's an, a perfect way to open this conversation today. And I'm, I'm thinking back to Marilyn Waring's uh, description of the origin of GDP as an economic framework and the way in which that's designed really around profit making for, for what were male dominated, consumptive, extractive, resource based industries. Um, and this tension between caring and work is one that Sharon and I talk about a lot. We talk a lot about the idea of valuing caring um, as a way of really rethinking the, the policy agenda. John, I want to come to you. I want to open this up further. Um, I'm really keen to get your ideas on how we've got to this particular situation, not just in terms of the gender imbalance, although that's a big part of it, but, but why and where people are feeling so short of time. What sorts of system issues are at play from your perspective? Um, thanks very much, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, listening to that outline, uh, Lyndall, for, uh, about your work. You know, I think that question of time is at the very heart of how we conceptualise work. And work is, is such a slippery category when you think about it. Um, when you drill down, um, you know, we've got to ask ourselves, is it measured by uh, whether a person's being paid? Is it measured by whether a person is being exploited for profit? Is it measured by the amount of physical or intellectual energy that's being expended? And the, the answer is no to all of those, those questions, really, because there are so many uh, contradictory uh, examples. So, you know, if I, is it work if I'm cooking at home and I enjoy cooking? Is it work if I'm cooking for a restaurant and I enjoy cooking? Is it work if I'm cooking at home and I hate it? Is it work if I, if I'm cooking at a restaurant and I hate it? Uh, you know, just to give one really simple example, but it really blows open that whole question. Is it work if I'm exhausted? Well, you know, I'm exhausted maybe after I've gone for a long run. Um, you know, and that's something I might enjoy. Is it work, uh, you know, if I've, if I've, um, been forced to do it? Uh, I think that's probably getting closer to how we understand work in, uh, 21st century, uh, capitalist society. Uh, and that is, uh, around the question of, uh, self-determination and control over one's time. And so that cuts to the very questions that Lyndall has raised about, uh, you know, a, a lack of choice, uh, a lack of ability to, uh, to, to have time where, uh, you are completely deciding what you are going to do. We call this spare time, don't we? You know, that spare is a really interesting concept in itself because it, it connotes the, the, the idea of surplus. And as Lyndall has said, uh, for women, uh, traditionally, uh, and this is very much incorporated into the very architecture of capitalism, uh, you know, th there is no spare time because that so-called surplus time that men in the, in, in the workplace have, uh, you know, is, is quarantined precisely by the fact that women are doing uh, the, the unpaid labour uh, in, in the domestic settings. Um, Marx, uh, in Das Kapital, of course, you know, uh, spent a lot of time drilling down to the minutiae of the working day. It took the feminist movement to then talk about drilling down into the, into the working day, uh, for women, uh, not in, in paid labour. But Marx's work, um, did in, indeed uh, include the work of women and children in the factories and, you know, uh, just the horror stories that were being told uh, by, by that really detailed analysis. Uh, and then you know, post the, the women's movement, the, the uh, anti-colonisation movement, uh, again, uh, laid open to us the, the, the whole uh, catastrophic uh, scene that we still rely on of, of, uh, you know, incredibly exploit, hyper exploitative, uh, labor conditions, uh, for the majority world. Um, Marx actually said, said something about spare time that I found interesting. He said in, in Das Kapital, in a capitalist society, spare time is acquired for one class by converting the whole lifetime of the masses into labor time. 
Now, this this I think is very relevant for today, particularly if you if you uh, view it through the feminist lens that Lyndall has uh, has just explained to us. But there's another uh, point that I want to make here, and that is the whole notion of precarity. Uh, so, in Australia right now, as you would be aware, the organised uh, working class, the, the union movement, is focusing on a campaign against insecure work. Uh, so, the campaign is secure jobs worth fighting for. Interestingly, uh, that whole notion of security and insecurity is nothing new. And there's a, a wonderful historian, Eloisa Betti, who points out that the, the notion of precarity, the, the word uh, uh, precarity comes from the Latin precarious, meaning obtained by praying. And when you think about it, those who hold the concentrated power over capital, uh, you know, this notion of them that they should be a best approached with an attitude akin to prayer. And that there, and yeah, you see that um, explicitly in the exploitation of visa holders and refugees, particularly in the agricultural sector in Australia right now. But the the dream there, or the nightmare, is of a dirt cheap, well behaved, fearful, grateful workforce. And even when during the height of the social democratic compromise, when unions were successful in significant wins in the areas of wages, uh, working conditions, uh, work health and safety, job security and broader social protections, um, precarity continued to be the norm uh, for women right across the world and for workers in the majority world. And we built into that social democratic compromise uh, shamefully uh, the apparatus for the punishment and control of sections of society who were deliberately pathologised and criminalised. So I've, I've gone all over the place a bit there, but I guess my, my main point is, you know, you ask about how, uh, you know, we have structured into the notion of work this, uh, this theft of time. Well, I think you know, it, it's very clear that that is deliberate and systematic and very well structured historically. And so our challenge is to dismantle that rather than to accommodate it, we need to dismantle it. Work at the moment is very much seen as a reproduction of existing social relations. And I think Lindell's uh, yeah, example, examples were, were uh, uh, you know, really illustrative of this. What I wonder, you know, we, we, we need to explore how work can be a reconfiguration of those social relations rather than a reproduction. Lindell, did you have some thoughts about this? Hmm. Yeah, the, uh, lovely points, John. And I, you know, I have to say that when you, when I've read Marx, what I've realised is how predominant time is as a, as a fundamental part of that social relationship. That we've we've often misunderstood that money is the fundamental part. It's time and money, and they're equally powerful in terms of the power relationships they embed. And I can I come back to this idea of agency over time because I think it's really really important. One of the things about the non-paid time is it also lacks agency. You know, responding in fact, responding to the care needs, be it a child or an elder person, is often almost you know urgent, time imperative. So, in fact, even outside the world of work, the unpaid work does lack agency as well. But its its supreme lack of agency is the fact that it's not valued. And in my mind, there is kind of two themes here. There is the idea of agency over time, which does reflect, I think, where people people's, um, if you like, it's a form of power relationships and discrimination. And your precariat concepts are a really good example of that, that as you look down through, if you like, the social stratas, as they run through all sorts of different gender, race, uh, class, all sorts of things, then you see agency over time being a theme for all those different groups um, that shows up. But the other, and that to me reflects who's valued. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about time is just sitting and watching how time works. When you go to a doctor, whose time matters? 
yours or theirs? When you wait in a queue, are you, if you, once upon a time when you went to an airport, you watch the first class people go through quickly. That the economy class stands in long queues at snake all their way back through the airport. That tells you how time signifies power and status. There's a beautiful concept called social weathering. And it's a concept used to, to, to show how societies wear down the disempowered. And social weathering shows up through a whole lot of subtle and not so subtle mechanisms. One's money, but the other's time. That constant being left to wait, being dealt with longer, being put behind, being deprioritized, all of which signifies you don't matter. And that is a powerful form of, of discrimination for people. And then it shows up in the workplace, of course, as well. I also felt that one thing that's, that's, that you, know, re, you reminded me of is, is Mark saying that moments are the element of profit. And so time is so incredibly and infinitely valuable, um, a market economy from an employer's point of view, because it's how they make money. Your time is how they make money. If you can do more in less time, you make more profit. If you can extract more from people per unit of time, you make more profit. If you can get them work longer for less money, you extract profit. So there's this engine of t- around time which motivates it's the mining of it, if you like, through um, the way we've imagined workplace relationships. And that makes it even harder for women because the bar never, never, never drops down while we allow that to happen in how we imagine work. There's a beautiful, um, very beautiful sort of way of thinking about um, work as tournaments, this idea of tournament theory, whereby people compete for jobs um, at almost like a tournament, particularly when you've got no upper limit. So if they're equally good, and we know women are, then what starts to change the tournament is how long and how hard they can work. So in fact, the metric starts to move away from your capabilities like your education. Women are even more educated than men now. So why aren't they ahead of them? Well, because they don't have the other piece of that tournament, the time free. And we have not dealt with that. We have allowed it to go unhindered, unhindered, and that's deregulation has fueled that even further, particularly in economies like ours, which are moving much more to a deregulated no end point. So, we, you know, we do have a 38-hour week. It looks good on paper, looks good on the OECD policy. Actually, uh, more than a quarter of our workforce work, work well past the 38-hour week. We, we, don't, we never limit that. We don't stop that. We have no social debate on that problem. Excellent spot for us to take a short break, John and Lyndall. Uh, we will continue this conversation in just a moment after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So, listeners, welcome back. I'm here with Lyndall Strazen and John Falzon in this final episode in our mini-series on work. Uh, in the technological era that we are existing with lockdown in the ACT, we've actually lost our co-host, Sharon Bezel. So um, it, it will be me on my own for the remaining part of today's podcast. Lyndall, you've done some beautiful work that's been drawing on the data from the longitudinal study of Australian children on time, that particularly the time that children spend with parents, and when we talk about the lack of work-life balance and increasing time demands of work, both paid and unpaid, we do tend to focus on the impact for adults, particularly women, and for good reason. But what sorts of impacts do we see on children and families, perhaps more broadly? 
well, okay. So thanks for that question. It's I think it, it picks up, up uh, quite a bit, I think, on the comments that John was making too, that we still imagine work as some kind of separate endeavour to the rest of the world, to the rest of the society, to communities, to families. Somehow we imagine that work has its own kind of, if you like, logics and imperatives and they do not they are separate from and not subject to the same logics and imperatives the rest of the world is. We need to change that. We need to see that actually our work is integral to the social fabric and that it actually shapes and alters so much of what everything else that happens, and that includes family life. So what fa- the evidence we can see is that what happens is that families, by and large, try and organise themselves to maximise work. Children do the same. In fact, the evidence on children is that rather than them, you know, being unrealistic, greedy or, if you like, naive about their parents' devotions to work, they tend to be quite practical about the need for their parents' work. They see that they need to earn money and sometimes, and quite, I think, heartbreakingly, there's quite a lot of evidence of children trying to help their parents work, help them managing, um, help them manage their jobs. For example, I was in... A, um, uh, a workshop which was an executive workshop for senior executives and one of the executives said, "I've, you know, just before I left, my daughter said to me, Dad, if I could help you with your work, would you play with me more? So there is a longing in children but we mustn't forget there's also a longing in parents to, to find that connection And when we've done the research, pairing, for example, particularly fathers, because fathers are, if you like, as locked into this, even while they may benefit, men as a a class may benefit from being the ones who get the money, they also lose. So we've done work looking at how fathers view their work and how their children view their father's work. And we call that, that paper Long Hours and Longings. And the longings referred not just to children's longings but to the father's. The fathers were longing to spend time with their children. They saw the impact and the children also talked about They said more than a third of Australian children said their fathers worked too much. Uh, about a quarter of them said that they don't enjoy the time they have with their father when he does work. Um, almost uh, a very small percentage said they wish their father didn't work at all. Those children actually were particularly likely to make that wish, which is quite unusual and extreme for children, if he was working extremely long hours and and he was working on weekends. And children in particular see that, that time on weekends is their time. They're willing to put up with weekday times, but they're not willing to lose time with their families on weekends. There's some lines in children's minds. Work has continued as if children and what they want um, is of no real consequence. It's simply a choice families make rather than a flow-on that, that transforms the, 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 the family fabric. So we then start to see that loss, that difficulty show up in lack of closeness in relationships, in relationship um, conflicts. Uh, in children's case, we also start to see that children's mental health starts to alter but their parents does does too. So where parents can actually manage both work and care, their mental health is optimal. And as the conflicts increase, their mental health goes down and so does their children's. So it's not just a worker who is struggling, it's actually the whole family struggles when we impose these work hour regimes. That is a huge cost. That's costing us many times over. Those work stress figures are costing us by multipliers if we were to actually take into account the ripple through the family and particularly generationally into children's lives. We don't talk about this and we certainly aren't showing any initiative at a national level to address it as a policy problem. Um, so that you know, that's one of the issues around work that I think we have to understand is that we have imagined it as separate and that shows up in the imagining around time. It's a separate time. It's unencumbered. There is nothing else that, that is um, – that time needs to be given to, we've imagined that the value of time is simply to work. But the value of time is also about love. It's about commitment. It's about caring. It's about giving. Time has so many other values. But in the current way we think about time, we've reduced it 
to something that gets paid for in a workplace and otherwise it's simply a choice. That's such a powerful and important point. And I have to say it cuts to the reasons why we thought it was a a perfect moment in time to be talking about work, um, particularly when we're imagining our future. Uh, this balance between economic drivers for for how we how we use our time and the you know the psychological and emotional consequences of that, and it really brings me often back to the the conversations we've had with Guy Standing about universal basic income, and if we take away that level of financial precarity from people's lives, if we give people dignified financial support, what choices will we make, and how different would they be? How would we use our time if if money wasn't the major driver? John, in our first episode of the series, James Sussman talked about the importance of leisure time for the Hyungwazi, the hunter-gatherer peoples of the southern part of Africa with whom he's been working for some decades now, and how that leisure time connected people. Uh, how can we start to rethink the importance and the role of leisure in our own societies and the value that it has, not just for individuals, but for societies and families and communities more broadly? Interestingly, uh, you know, the the whole concept of leisure is very much uh, tied to class in a capitalist society. So, you know, as Lyndall was saying, you know, money uh, money buys the power over time Uh, and, you know, that includes leisure. And leisure itself has become so heavily commodified that, again, we we put a monetary value on what leisure activities we can purchase, uh, which, of course, is quite soul-destroying for all of us uh, when you think that, um, you know, there are so many activities, as Lindell's put it so beautifully, uh, that are at the very heart of being human uh, and caring, uh, being with those you love, um, culture, art, which, you know, again, has become so segmented and commodified and marketized, uh, but is something so inherently human, uh, cultural practice, uh, the work of grieving and mourning, uh, caring for the planet, uh, being connected with each other and with uh, our environment, uh, all of these areas that, you know, in- interestingly, um you know, we have so much to learn uh, from First Nations peoples, uh, you know, who, uh, you know, in defiance of the capitalist paradigm, uh, you know, continue uh, against all odds and in the face of incredible um, in, 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 incredible um, negativity, uh, continue to place value on those activities that are outside the scope of the market. And so I, th- I think we need, you know, it's not a matter of going backwards, but it's a matter of, uh, you know, claiming this site of struggle. Now, I think one of the key problems is the fact that, you know, it's a bit like a god, this thing we call the economy, hovering over us as this, you know, distinct entity and, you know, it, we, it, it creeps into our language because we hear it from our leaders. You know, this is good for the economy. Uh, the economy is doing well. You know, we might be falling all over the place. The planet's burning. Uh, we've got a, 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 you know, a gender violence uh, crisis. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, people have, you know, lost their jobs or people have become uh, detached from the labour market completely, uh, you know, and, and so the unemployment figures aren't, aren't looking too bad because people have given up looking for work or, you know, work has become incredibly insecure and yet the economy is doing well. So the economy in this construct is profits, really. Uh, it's certainly not us. It's certainly not workers and I, you know by, when I say workers I mean it in that broadest and most accurate sense that Lindell has spoken of you know, at, you know not just tied to the notion of paid work in the in the official formal labor market so because we have this economy hovering over us it governs our whole notion of time you know in the same way that religion I guess can can govern and completely configure uh, the sense of time. And when you think about it in pre-capitalist societies, uh, religion played a a very important role in configuring how we understood time. So 
first point is we, we need to see economic activity, and by that I mean how we make, what we make, including the intangibles, including the non-commodifiables, but you know, what we make and what we share, you know, what we need. Uh, we need to see this as a site of struggle rather than some kind of given that we just need to live with. And I really loved what Lyndall was saying about, you know, equality in the current terms is, is, you know, yes, these are fights worth having, but they do not address the, the fundamental problems. Uh, I, I, I recently read an interview with Sean Fay, uh, who's just written a, a recently released book called The Transgender Issue. And in it, she spoke about um, the, the, her use of the term liberation. And she said, you know, when we talk about liberation, it's about the idea that you wouldn't want to be equal within a society that's already corrupted. And so whilst that's not taking away for the everyday bread and butter struggles for equality, uh, I think we do need to think bigger, uh, the, this notion of being liberated from the very structures that confine us. Uh, going back to leisure, interesting, you know, one thing that occurs to me is, you know, uh, people who are um, experiencing unemployment or underemployment uh, are often uh, painted as having this inordinate amount of leisure time. And so, you know, according to the, the uh, this heavily moralising discourse of work ethic and laziness, uh, you know, pathologising and criminalising people, um, people who are unemployed or underemployed are, are somehow painted as being immoral. Um, and yet, and yet my experience in speaking with people experiencing unemployment is that you know, this is not leisure time. Number one, you, you, you're forced to jump through uh, through hoops, uh, you know, the, the whole um, compliance system. Secondly, that the sense of insecurity and not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow and the fact of, you know, going back to Lindell's point, a complete removal of agency over one's life means that this is not time that is enjoyable. And so, uh, you know, it's an interesting complexity there. It reminds me of, remember, the, uh, the British economist, Joan Robinson, who, who cheekily uh, said, you know, the misery of being exploited by capitalists is nothing compared to the misery of not being exploited at all. And, you know, it was very clever because you know, she's, she's very much saying, well, you know, if this is the box we're working in, uh, it's a really shitty box, you know. We, we, we need to think more about, uh, blowing the box up, you know, c completely changing the way, liberating ourselves uh, from the strictures of that box because uh, this is the liberation of time that we're talking about. Uh, you know, time is the space for human development, for human flourishing. We need to democratise what we broadly understand to be work in order to democratise life in order to democratise time. Uh, this is the, is the real liberation. And it's, it's no accident that work, as uh, you know, however we conceive it, is in many ways the key or one of the key sites of political struggle today. And so I think we need to take very seriously um, the, those organised struggles uh, by the working class, uh, but we need to broaden what that means because, the, you know, the, during the era of, of the social democ democratic compromise and into the neoliberal period, um, you know, work has, you know, has, has always had that very strongly masculinized, uh, you know, um, framing. Um, Judith Butler in a, a recent interview, uh, you know, has, has just, spoken so beautifully about the, the need for us to work across differences and she said to, to, we need to build complex accounts of social power, accounts that help us to build links among the poor, the precarious, the dispossessed 
LGBTQI peoples, workers, and all those subjected to racism and colonial subjugation. And she speaks about this in the sense of the, the broader struggle to protect the planet uh, and uh, and to value the, the 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 very heart of our being, and that is uh, to look out for each other. John and Lyndall, I could speak with the two of you about these reframing ideas uh, for for many more hours, but we are going to wrap this conversation up. And from both of you, I would like you, rather than to give me a concrete policy advice, to, on today's uh, pod, let's think big. Let's challenge the ideas of, of work that we adopt as, as routine in our life and let's really ask that deep question, why do we work and, and, and can we, by, by returning to the fundamental sense of purpose, can we use the notions around work to reimagine a better world of work, a place where work makes us happier, it improves our sustainability and our environmental indices and also helps us to address the challenge of inequality. Lyndall, what's your best suggestion for dreaming big on work? So I've, I, I'm going to dream big, but I'm going to give you something very practical because that's who I am as well. So I would say <laughs> we need to re- reimagine work as something that shifts away from a framing of taking to a framing of giving. And it may not be that different in some ways, but it may be profoundly different because if you th- un- imagine that work is about giving, not taking, from people, then you start to put their agency back into it. You start to ask, you start to negotiate, and you start to make that, and you start to value that gift. So there is, that is a, that is a very big picture way of starting to re, rethink work. And I, I would say to you that when, I wouldn't say this is actually a feminine way of thinking about work, but I think that when you have been the subject of taking, and are being taken from every day, minute by minute, in a meeting, in a conversation, in your invisible efforts that you make outside of work, you really do understand how damaging taking is and how we need to shift. So I'm not saying that is a property of women. I think it's a property of anyone who's been taken from systematically every single day. And I certainly, when I look at our um, the First Nations uh, generosity in this country who have been so subject to take, yet they still give and they still understand how important giving is as a foundational principle. So that that's the big picture piece of that. Now, what that would drill down in, let me get super practical. We need to, we need to change the working week. We need to set a four-day working week. It's that easy and it's that hard. And if we were to do that, we would actually allow everyone to be able to be the contributors, the carers, um, to be able to give as well as work, no matter who they were, no matter what they had going on, and that would help knit work back into the fabric that supports it really, which is the communities and the families. Time to care for self, for community and for the environment. John, and that's health. pretty hard. And health, absolutely. So, John, that's pretty hard to beat, um, oh, but I know yeah. that you, you'll Tough come up with something amazing. So, so please tell us your, your uh, give us your, your one-liner on the future of work and how we can do better. All right. Um, so uh, inspired by Lyndall's practicality, which I don't share, but I'm going to seek to emulate, the, the, the very immediate task at hand, I think, is, uh, you know, that the, uh, the union movement in Australia is bang on the money when it talks about needing to eliminate insecure work. I do completely endorse uh, and believe we need to fight for secure jobs as an important stepping stone to having control over our lives. Uh, the bigger picture, uh, the, the, you know, the big, the big dreaming, uh, really is, you know, we talk about surplus, uh, you know, we talk about you know, surplus labour, surplus profit, uh, budgetary surpluses, company surpluses. Uh, what I'd love to see is us uh, aiming, you know, one of, our, one of our major social objectives should be to build a surplus of education, a surplus of culture, a surplus of care, uh, dare I say, a surplus of love. It, this is worth fighting for. 
And if, you know, we have no trouble having a surplus of things we do not need, and yet these are the things we need most, and yet we, we daren't dream of having too much of these things. In my view, of course, you can't have too much. But I'd like to uh, finish with the beautiful words of uh, Auntie Lilla Watson, uh, who famously said, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. John and Lyndall, that is an extraordinary place for us to wrap up our mini-series on work. I am so grateful for the two of you spending time with us today. Listeners, this is where we leave our mini-series on work. We've had six episodes which have all changed how I think and how I approach the notions of work. We've challenged assumptions. We've understood the origins of work and the role that it places in our society. We've talked about the way in which work affects our health and well-being. And today we've really talked about what the future of work might look like, that we can move from taking to giving and that our best goal maybe for our human future is to create that surplus of love. So thank you, John, and thank you, Lyndall. Thank you, James Sussman. Thank you, Marilyn Waring and Shahara Rizari, Guy Standing and Michelle O'Neill for all of the work that's gone into the last couple of weeks of the work series. So I very much hope everyone's enjoyed that. Listeners, that's it for the series. We are so grateful that you've been listening to us. We really love feedback and we remind you to reach out to us on Twitter on, at APPS Policy Forum or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. We're on Facebook and you can go uh, to Facebook and type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and join into quite an active discussion group there. We'd love you to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. We love to read them and we take them seriously. We're always open to suggestions and change. Next week, we're back with a regular episode. Um, but for, for this series and the work series and uh, on behalf of Angus Blackman and Sharon Bezel, thank you so much for listening and, and I hope you enjoy going back over these episodes. We've certainly had a ball. Bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.